The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. We are going to jump into our text this morning, guys. If you have your Bibles at home, we're going to be in Acts chapter 21, and we're going to be starting in verse 17. So I know Evan just prayed, but I'm going to pray one more time, mostly because I cannot do this without the Spirit coming and empowering me to do this. So I'm going to ask that he would be magnified through this time as we open his word. God, we do just pray that we here in the hub would disappear and that all eyes would be focused on you. Lord, we prayed that for worship and that was such a blessed time. God, we pray that for even right now as we teach your word how we don't want this to be about anybody or anything but you. So God, give us wisdom as we open up Acts 21. Help us to understand what's going on here and help us to take the truths of your scriptures and and apply them to our hearts, apply them to our lives, God. We just love you and we pray this in your name. Amen, amen. Acts 21 is a pretty stinking sweet chapter. If you look at what Mike taught last week, um, you'll see that there was a lot of warnings from different disciples, followers of Jesus to Paul not to continue on his journey to Jerusalem. Acts 21.4 says this, And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. Okay, they're like, hey, bad things are going to happen in Jerusalem. Don't go. And then later on in verse 11 of that, we see the crazy prophetic moment with this dude named Agabus. It says, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, thus says the Holy Spirit. This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. I'm assuming that once was probably pretty convincing as the disciples said, hey, the Spirit's saying don't go. And then after this prophetic moment with Agabus, like Paul surely knew something's about to go down if I go to Jerusalem. If he were me, which thankfully he was not, I'd be super scared at this point, wondering what was going to happen. But in recap, let me just review what Paul said in response to Agabus doing this whole shindig with the belt. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, said, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I'm ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And then we read in the next verse that he wouldn't be persuaded and the disciples just gave up, right? Probably sorrowful because they knew that their friend was walking into a very dangerous situation. Why did I read this? Because I want you guys to focus in, I want to focus in on Paul's response to this imminent danger. He's like, because why are you freaking out? I'm willing to be put in chains or even die for the sake of the gospel, the sake of the Lord Jesus 
in Jerusalem. And this is what's so interesting is little did Paul know that that attitude, that mindset, that resolve that he had was going to be put to the test very, very quickly. And it actually happens in the section of the scriptures that we're going to cover today. We're going to get there, but I'm going to give a little spoiler alert. Stuff goes south for Paul really quick, but it wasn't wasted or it wasn't in vain. Verse 17 of Acts 21. Paul's continuing his journey. It says, when he had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. This first section of scripture is actually pretty intense. It doesn't seem that way, but when you do a little studying, you do a little exploring of the backstory, you'll find that not only did Paul most likely use this opportunity to present an offering from some of the Pauline churches or the churches that he planted to the church at Jerusalem, but guys, there were some rumors being kind of spread around about Paul that could have led to some division in the churches. And this is what I mean. We'll get into this a little bit later, but ultimately when he shows up to Jerusalem and the elders and James, they receive him gladly, that probably make Paul take a big, deep breath. This is good news. And then of course, They've been in Jerusalem. We're going to find out in a bit that thousands of Jews have gotten saved, this church in Jerusalem. And so they're like this little family. But then here's Paul and, and his missionary buddies. They're going out into the world. They're preaching the gospel. They're starting churches. And unlike today, there probably wasn't great communication going on. There wasn't like cell phones. There wasn't church websites with doctrinal statements so that they could all see that they're on board with the same mission and believe the same things about Jesus, right? They didn't know. So of course they're hearing rumors about Paul or probably rumors about these churches and, and we're going to find out that Paul didn't want these churches to be divided but he wanted unity within the churches. So when they received him gladly that was probably a good, uh, a good thing. There's probably a sigh of relief for Paul. He, he presents most likely this collection to James and the other elders and then after greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And again, when they heard it, they glorified God. I really wanted to camp on this first section for a little bit because I was struck as I read this about two things, right? Very similar in nature, but the first is this. I was struck by the power of testimony. The power of testimony. Second, the power of our stories. I'll talk about testimony first, right? Again, Paul's been out and about. The, the leaders in the church in Jerusalem, they didn't know what exactly was going on. And so when Paul comes and just starts like giving them loads and loads of information, talking about the things that God had done as he's planting churches and preaching the gospel, no doubt this was an encouragement to those believers in Jerusalem and to the church elders because they glorified God. Let me share something that I'm, I'm very blessed to be a part of. Um, as a youth pastor in the valley, 
Um, I have been, again, blessed to be able to connect with other youth pastors from other churches. So twice a month, I get the opportunity, again, twice a month, not during the COVID crisis, but twice a month, I get the opportunity to, one, meet with probably eight to 10 other youth pastors at a coffee shop, and we just start talking ministry we ask each other questions. We ask each other how things have been going. What strategies have we been using? What has God been able to do in your youth group? Tell me some stories. What has God been doing abroad? So I get to meet with them there. And then another time a month, we've started this in the, in the recent months, but we've gotten together with a little bit smaller group of us and we've just been able to pray for one another. And I'm telling you guys, every time I leave one of these meetings, I am so greatly encouraged. If you have not been in ministry before, you might think that being in ministry is glamorous. That we all see like miracles all the time. Like, oh, God's just always on the move. And then you might think also that we're constantly and, and without like unceasingly excited about what God is doing and we're always just seeing him at work and we're always encouraged and filled with the spirit and filled with joy. Guys, I gotta be honest, that's just not the case. I wish it were. In a perfect world, it would be. But a lot of times, guys, ministry is like walking through mud that's like just super deep up to our knees and one step after the other is just difficult as we trudge through. And you know what's extremely important is to have people that know what's going on so for me, these other youth pastors that know what the experience is like, but then also come together so that we can share stories and testimonies of what God is doing. Because sometimes when I'm stuck in the mud of ministry, I don't feel like God's moving around me. Like I'm, I'm kind of blind to seeing what he's doing at times. And when I show up and one of the youth pastors goes, Mitch, you guys, listen, you wouldn't believe what just happened last week. This kid was stuck in this sin. And it's not like we're talking about all the kids in the valley. I don't want to make it sound like that. But wow, this kid was stuck. And then God came in and just rescued him. And like he gave his heart to the Lord. And we had seven baptisms at this night. And it was the coolest thing ever. And I'll tell you that hearing that, I can go one of two ways. I can go to like envy and I can go to jealousy, but forget that. That's fruitless and worthless. Instead, these are my brothers and, and I can rejoice with them. And what it does is it encourages my soul so much. And then I can glorify God along with other people who are laboring in the same type of work. So, so what does this mean for for you guys, for us, right? I never want to discount the power of a testimony of what God is doing. So many times I just get so caught up in like the details, like, well, yes, Jesus created everything and then Jesus came down and then he lived a perfect life and he died on the cross and he rose from the grave and now he's alive and you need to repent of your sins and that's it. It's all about the facts. Yeah, that's all really true, but, but I relate to stories and I want to hear not only what God has done like long, long ago, thousands of years ago, but, but he's still alive and he's still working and he's still moving. And I need to be encouraged by other people sharing that stuff with me. So I would encourage you guys to do the very same thing. If God is working and moving in your life and doing things or in this crisis, if God has provided for you and your family, if God has met you guys in a season of trial or fire, please share that with other believers because there's power in a testimony. And as you 
share the things that God is doing in the here and now, the hearts of other believers will be encouraged. So that's the first thing. From believer to believer, please share testimonies. Next up, guys, I also want to consider the use of our personal testimony and story uh, as it relates to our conversion and as it relates to evangelism. I was just flipping through the rest of the book of Acts and and Acts 26 is a perfect example of this. We're not there yet. I don't want to give it away. But Paul, as he continues on this journey that ultimately ends in Rome, uh, Paul stands before this king, King Agrippa. And, And what does he do as he shares with this king? He actually tells the story of his conversion. And he says, hey, look, I was on the road to Damascus and then I was blinded by this light. I went blind and then I, I was over, uh, I was on this road to walk to Damascus so I could get more Christians and put them in chains. But God met me on that road and I couldn't see anything, but God gave me a vision of this man named Ananias. And then Ananias came and prayed for me. And then these scales fell off my eyes. And I was like, who are you, Lord? And it's like, it's me, Jesus, the one you're persecuting. He tells this story and, and what I've been considering is like how much people, People can relate to stories. So I can tell people, you can tell people what God has done in your life. So all of us have a story. A story probably filled with, with dark, deep, depressing stuff where we were just stuck in sin and without hope in the world. But then in comes Jesus. And it's like the testimony videos that many of us failed to to do, including myself, that we asked uh, of our church to share that one minute testimony, how Jesus changed your life. Guys, those stories are powerful because people can relate with them. And the coolest thing about these stories is that if you're a believer in Christ, you know that nothing in your story is wasted and that there's a hero in your story and that hero is Jesus. He's the one that came in to rescue. He's the one that came in to save. And because Jesus is the, the hero of the story, when we tell those stories, right, the hope is that people would hear the name of Jesus and see the life change and see your heart change and, and then want to know more. And you're like, well, let me tell you more about this Jesus. Uh, the universe didn't begin by just a random big bang out in the middle from a couple of particles. No, but instead God actually spoke and things came to be. He created everything. And then not only that, he didn't just create, his, create this place, but instead, he, when he made people, he set his love on his people so much so that even though they rebelled against him, he would come down and take on flesh, live a perfect life, and go to the cross that any who would believe in him um, would not perish but have everlasting life because he paid for the sins and the debt that we owed God, and he rose from the grave. Then we go into the gospel, right? But just using story as we tell of Jesus has a whole lot of power. Let's move on. Verses 20 through 24. After they're glorifying God because of the things that Paul has told them about the work of God among the Gentiles, um, they bring up a little bit of a problem and this gets into those rumors that the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem had heard about Paul. Says they said to him, you see brother, how many thousands there are among all the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. They have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children 
or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. So there's a big problem here, right? There's a lot of Jews that have believed in Jesus in Jerusalem, which is a very great thing, praise God. But these Jews are super zealous and passionate about these ceremonial laws that are part of their culture, part of their tradition, right? And Paul understands this. He was a Jew. He's a Jew. Um, but again, he's been ministering to Gentiles all over the place. And, and ultimately, he has been preaching and proclaiming the kingdom of God, recognizing and teaching these Gentiles that for them, uh, their path to Jesus wasn't through the synagogue or it wasn't through the Old Testament law. But there was a problem because these Jewish Christians had heard this about Paul. And so ultimately, we're gonna read right now that the elders and James kind of developed a plan of how Paul can put these concerns to rest that the Jewish believers had. We're gonna read it. We're gonna talk about this more in whole. Verse 22, what then is to be done? They'll certainly hear that you have come. Verse 23, do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. I like this passage already. Anytime we talk about shaving heads, that's a good thing. Thus, all will know that there's nothing in what they've been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. So, real quick, what's the plan? There's a lot of kind of half information in this. We dig in, it'll give us a little bit of clarity. So what's the plan? Do therefore we, what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. What in the world does that mean, right? Do we don't understand that. It's very rare. If you walked up to somebody in the street nowadays, you're like, hey man, I'm under a vow. They wouldn't know what that meant. But again, these are Jewish believers. Paul was a Jew. They would know what they're talking about. What are they talking about? Well, they're talking about a Nazarite vow. If you go to Numbers chapter 6, you can read all about it. But basically, taking a Nazarite vow, you'd be consecrating yourself or setting yourself apart for the Lord. There was no wine or strong drink that you could have. You couldn't go around a dead body, which I wouldn't want to go around one anyways, but that's beside the point. And then you would grow out your hair. You couldn't shave your head during this Nazarite vow. What's interesting is this. When you're done with your Nazarite vow, you had to bring some sacrifices to the priests in order to finish this. So I'll just read this again real quick. Numbers chapter 6, verse 13, it says, And this is the law for the Nazarite. When the time of his separation has been completed, he shall be brought to the entrance of the tent of meeting. He shall bring his gift to the Lord one male lamb a year old without blemish for a burnt offering and one ewe lamb a year old without blemish as a sin offering and one ram without blemish as a peace offering and a basket of unleavened bread, loaves of fine flour mixed with oil and unleavened wafers smeared with oil and their grain offering and their drink offerings. Skip ahead 
to verse 18, the Nazarite shall shave his consecrated head at the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall take the hair from his consecrated head and put it on the fire that is under the sacrifice of the peace offering. After this, the priest would do some waving and it is then concluded, it says this is the law of the Nazarite, uh, but if he vows an offering to the Lord above his Nazarite vows, he can afford in exact accordance with the vow that he takes, then he shall do in addition to the law of the Nazarite. So, again, back to Acts 21, Paul shows up, the elders say, hey, we need to show the Jews that you don't despise the traditions of their law. So what can we do? They said, all right, here's the thing. You've been studying, you've been out abroad, plenty of churches. You're going to go back in the temple. So you and I both know by Jewish tradition, in order to re-enter the temple, right, you'd have to go through a, a time, seven days of purification. So this is what we think you should do. You should go through those days of purification and kind of do it at the same time that all these dudes going through the Nazarite vow, do it at the same time as them when they're coming to the priest to close out their vow. Not only that, but we also think that you should um, pay for their expenses, verse 24. So what does that mean? Right? They're saying, hey, is it possible, would it be possible for you to actually pay for the animals and the grain and all the stuff that they're going to have to sacrifice to the priests to do their vow? Thus, they said, if you do this, all will know that there's nothing in what they've been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. So, the solution, again, have Paul go through the purification according to the law since he's been out of town. Do it at the same time as the guys finishing up their Nazarite vows as they've set themselves apart for the Lord. And on top of that, pay for the expenses. Now, what is Paul doing? And we need to pause for a second and examine what Paul actually thought and taught concerning the law. And these are New Testament churches, so what they taught and what they believed about the law, the role the law played in this time is very much applicable to us, and I think it'd be good for us to kind of get an overview of what was going on here, the importance of the law, how we decipher different laws in the Old Testament, and, and why Paul ended up doing this even though he was no longer bound to these ceremonial laws of the Old Testament. So, what's the charge of the rumor? We hear that Paul, even though he's a Jew, is going around to all these places telling people that they should forsake the laws of Moses. What the heck? Well, what did Jesus say about the law first? Matthew 5, 17, Jesus said this, do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. That's good. That's what Jesus taught. That's what Paul would believe too, that the law is not just abolished. He's not doing away with it completely, but instead the law has been fulfilled by Jesus. Praise God. We read that ultimately the law was never able to save but instead it makes us know how sinful we are when we don't measure up to the law. We realize how much we need a savior and then in comes Jesus fulfilling that law for us. Our righteousness is now tied to Jesus' perfect life. Well, let's continue this discussion about the law. So while Paul would hold this view, 
um, about the law and he would still himself do some of the traditional things in the Old Testament law, his perspective on the law has definitely and rightly shifted. So number one, I'll just be short and sweet with two points. No longer is the law or adherence to the law a part of the equation for salvation. Okay, it wasn't like God is going to be our God and we're going to be God's people because we follow X, Y, Z, A, B, C of the law. That's not how it works. The law is not part of the equation for salvation. Paul's relationship with God and everyone's relationship with God is going to be by grace through faith. So here's what's interesting, right? The, the, Jared, the, the Jewish ceremonial law, right? I'll read a quote. Paul knew that the death warrant of Jewish ceremonial law had been signed, but but he could leave it to time to carry out the sentence. The one thing which he resolved should not be was its imposition on Gentile Christians. Their road to Jesus, again, wasn't through the temple or synagogue. As for Jewish Christians, let them keep to the ritual if they so choose. But it's not part of the salvation. It shouldn't be imposed on the Gentile Christians. Relationship with God is by grace through faith. If Jewish believers wanted to continue with circumcision and they want to continue with Nazarite vows, that's fine. They can do that. They're free to do that. That's a liberty. Here's the second thing, right? When Paul looks at the law, when I look at the law, um, it's, you can separate it really into a couple groups, but I'll just do it into two, right? You have moral or ethical laws and then you have ceremonial laws and the like. They hold different weight, right? So laws of moral and ethical significance, as, as R.C. Sproul would say, right? You have the don't murder, don't steal, don't covet, don't worship any other gods beside the Lord. Like, we look at this, we don't reject that. That's good stuff. Of course I'm not supposed to murder. Of course I'm not supposed to steal or covet. These are good laws, and by the power of the Spirit, like, that's what I'm aiming to do. I hope to be a free man my whole life and not end up in prison there's consequences for sin but then on the other side you have hand washing laws you have circumcision laws you have purification laws laws about not wearing clothes woven of two different materials which does happen to be in the same chapter of Leviticus that talks about not having tattoos okay all these laws had like a cultural significance but they don't have any moral or ethical bearing. So again, these are laws or areas in which Jewish Christians at the time could and now can't exercise their liberty if they want. But again, they don't hold any weight as it comes when it comes to salvation. So real quick, an example of this, and I know that this is pretty deep stuff, but it's interesting to note. Um, how did Paul do this in the past? So in Acts chapter 16, if we go back, I believe Jeremy was teaching, um, Paul and Timothy actually somehow agree that Timothy is going to be circumcised as they're embarking on this missionary journey, okay? Not a very fun thing to go through with, but for whatever reason, they felt that it was a good thing to do. But then, 
If you look in Galatians chapter two, verses three through five, you'll read that Paul actually at one point refuses to let Titus be circumcised. And you're going, well, what's the difference? Why would he have Timothy be circumcised but then not allow Titus to be circumcised? What was the difference? And guys, I think the answer is, is found in this, right? In Acts 16, they must have thought that by Timothy doing this, that, that they'd that they'd have a way of becoming all things to all men. Like Romans 14, 13 says this, therefore don't pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. Or verse 19 of the same chapter, so then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. And he's talking about weaker believers in that chapter and stronger believers and people having clear consciences and guilty consciences with things that are kind of gray area. So maybe when, maybe when they had Timothy circumcised, they're like, this is gonna be a value for us, so let's do this as we look to further the kingdom of God. But then if you dig further into Galatians, and the whole Titus thing, you'll see that in Galatians 1, Paul says, look, if me or an angel from heaven, anyone preaches a gospel contrary to the one that you've heard, let that person be accursed. What does that tell us? There were these Judaizers that were coming in that were preaching a gospel contrary to the gospel of grace. What in the world were they saying? Well, it actually had to do with circumcision. So instead of like circumcision being this tradition thing that, a matter of preference, you can do it or not. These Judaizers were coming in saying, hey, no, 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 it's actually Jesus and grace and faith plus circumcision equals salvation. Like you need to have this sign of the covenant in order to be saved. And Paul was having none of that. So what does he do? He actually refuses to let Titus be circumcised because he's not gonna put a seal of approval on this false gospel that's being spread. He's opposing the Judaizers and he will not give in to their demands. So, in closing this section, Paul throws these guys in Acts 21 a bone. He decides he's gonna do what the elders and James had asked him to do. Uh, kind of, again, that Romans 14 mindset maybe. Again, becoming all things to all men. He doesn't want to put a stumbling block. We talked about this again. He's trying to spell off division, right? He wants the churches to be united. He doesn't want all these Jews to be super mad at him. And it wasn't a matter of, oh, he needs to do this or else he's not saved type thing. So he decides that he is going to do what they've asked him to do, but verse 25, I'll just read it. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we've sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what's been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what's been strangled and from sexual immorality. So this is kind of interesting. Right after they say, hey, Paul, we think you should do this, it's almost like they step in, they go, but, but we would remind you and everyone of, of what we already established in Acts chapter 15 with that council. When it comes to Jewish believers and Gentile believers and what, what burdens or requirements we should put on the Gentile believers, they said that it's good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than the requirements we just read. They had already determined that Gentile believers didn't have to adhere to the letter of the law in order to be counted as part of the family. So in a way, I read this and, and a lot of commentators were thinking that this is kind of a way um, 
to go back and solidify what they had taught, right? Them encouraging Paul to do these things with the Jewish believers does not undermine what they'd written to the Gentile believers, nor did it mean that they were going back on their word or reverting back to Judaism. It was still salvation by grace through faith. So verse 26, then Paul took the men and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. Verse 27, when the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. Gosh darn it. As I was studying this, I was sitting there going, man, you know what this sounds like to me? This roller coaster of a ride in Acts, it's like the perfect network television show that never wants to die. Okay, hear me out, hear me out. The best show that I think ever exists, like the most cliffhanger show ever has to be 24. It was like the first one, right? Each episode was like supposedly an hour, even though it felt like an eternity in the day. And you'd watch this episode and each episode had its own problems. And there, there was like conflicts that needed to be resolved. And this dude named Jack Bauer, he was just so stinking cool and he could kill or beat up anybody. It was awesome. But like every episode, the stress level would just rise as you figure out what the conflict is and it would be so intense. And of course, Jack Bauer won the day. He was like the the Jesus of 24, right? He's like the hero of the story. And then all of a sudden, the last 10 minutes, all the conflicts start to be resolved. And you watching, you're like, oh man, I can have some peace and some quiet. And then all of a sudden, you guys know if you've watched this or Prison Break or Lost or any of these, the last minute, all of a sudden you have this moment where they're like, dun, 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 dun. And then you realize that everything changed and the plot twists and the president's actually dead and it wasn't who he thought it was and there's another layer to the conspiracy and the sweet little grandma that baked everybody cookies isn't even a grandma. She's a secret assassin. And then all of a sudden it's the end of the episode and you're like, what? And you're like, no. And you're like clicking so fast because you don't want to wait the 15 seconds for Netflix to play the next episode. Like you need it now, right? This is binge watching at its finest. Guys, this is just like that. You're like, Paul, here's a plan. How you can just bring peace and unity and ha ah, between the churches and it'll be awesome. And he's like, all right, you know what? I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. But then in comes these Jews from Asia and they see him in the temple and all of a sudden they stir up the whole crowd and laid hands on him and they cried out, men of Israel, help this is the man who's teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place and you read this and you're going my goodness these have to be the most dramatic people on the planet earth I know because I'm super dramatic but there's like help help like this guy he's teaching everyone everywhere against the law and the people and this place it's like you need to calm down You need to calm down. One commentator said this, the ever inflammable population of Jerusalem. Like these people liked their riots and they liked their commotion and this was no different. These Jews stirred everyone up They even made up a a, a lie, basically. They said, moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. This was a huge no-no, and Paul would not have done this. 
They believed this, though, because they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Verse 30, Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. This is so interesting. They're all like charging at Paul. They're going to beat him up. They're going to bloody him up. They want to kill him, but they need to make sure that the temple stays clean because that's like hypocrisy 101. So they're like, drag him out of the temple before you kill him, please. We don't want to mess with this holy space. So they drag him out and they shut the gates and they start to just go ham on Paul's face. And then, as they were seeking to kill him, verse 31, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped baiting Paul. In come the Romans, right? And all the Jews were like, oh, okay, sorry, yeah, we didn't do anything. Stop beating Paul. And the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. See what I'm saying at the first part of Acts 21? When Paul's like, guys, I'm ready. I'm ready to be put in chains, even die for the sake of the Lord Jesus. Well, he didn't have to wait too long because the fool just got arrested right now. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another, and as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, this is how crazy the crowd was, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. Guys, I have another quote I want to read to you. I really want to finish. We're almost done, by the way, so thanks for hanging in there. I want to finish with really two points. Um, The first is something I confess I, I had not thought of until I read this paragraph, and it's just been blowing me away ever since, and I want to read it to you. The first thing I want to note in this last little section is God's sovereign hand at work. Listen to this, uh, this old dude, Alexander McLaren, wrote this. Mark 2, how blindly men fulfill God's purposes. The two bitter antagonists, Jew and Roman, seem to themselves to be working in direct opposition. But God is using them both to carry out his design. Paul has to be got to Rome. And these two forces are combined by a wisdom beyond their ken to carry him there. Two cogged wheels turning in opposite directions fit into each other and grind out a resultant motion different from either of theirs. These soldiers and the mob were like pawns on a chessboard, ignorant of the intentions of the hand which moves them. Like, oh my gosh, this is crazy. The Jews that wanted to kill Paul 
And then you have these Roman soldiers that were not great. And they both are like trying to do things their way. And these, as he said, these two cogged wheels turning in opposite directions. God in his magnificent wisdom fits them together. And it says he puts these in a, like puts these two wheels in a resultant motion that's actually different from both of their agendas. God's using them to like work his plan. Like, what in the world? If we cannot read this and know that our sovereign God is at work, even in the most bizarre circumstances. And of course, I mean, I hate to keep mentioning it, but this is a bizarre circumstance. What we're living in right now, it's hard to see God at work. But you think about governments and you think about leaders and you think about all the voices right now that are speaking to the public that everybody's listening to. They might have an agenda from this side and they might have an agenda over here and the Republicans are over here and the Democrats are over here and everybody has an opinion and they're all trying to work out their will. But little did they know that all these crazy different wills are coming together and God, who's like this master chess player, is moving these pawns all around the board exactly where he wants to move them and he's in control always there's not one second where god is not sovereign or in control blew me away in the story and i'm hoping that we can take rest in the fact that this is the same god that we serve even now it's the first thing i wanted us to note the second thing is the last verse again i'll read it as paul gets carried away says for the mob of the people followed crying out away with him away with him and if you just read this without doing some digging or studying um, it might be easy to pass over the significance of these words but um, Paul, Paul wasn't the only one to hear these words when he was on trial if you look at Luke chapter 23 verse 18 um, you'll come across the time in history where where Jesus had been arrested and he was um, he was at the time I guess you could say under the authority of Pontius Pilate and the day had come where they would release a prisoner to the people and so Pilate, as you guys might remember, brings out Jesus and then one other dude. The dude's name is Barabbas. Barabbas was a bad dude. But the people were screaming the same words that Paul had heard now at Jesus. Away with him. It's insinuating they just want to to die. To kill him. Just take him away. Be done with Paul. In the same way that they yelled that to Jesus in Luke 23. Or to Pilate in John 19. The same thing. The people were crying out. Away with him. Away with him. Crucify him. Like I don't want to see Jesus anymore. Now Paul is hearing the same exact words. And, And you have to wonder what was going through Paul's mind. 
right? He's the one that wrote eventually Philippians 1.29 that says this, it's been granted to us for the sake of Christ to suffer. So maybe that's running through his mind. He's like, yeah, it's actually a gift. Jesus suffered on my behalf. I'm partaking in his suffering. I'm getting to suffer for the sake of Christ. This is exactly what I just said I wasn't afraid to do. Maybe that's running through his head. Or maybe it's Romans chapter 8, 17, which he also wrote. And he's, he's saying in his mind, I'm a child of God. I'm an heir, heir with God and fellow heir with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Maybe this is running through his mind. And, and if I'm honest, as I was reading through this, I'm going, wow, this shouldn't surprise Paul. Like in a way, he knew this was coming. Not only had he just been warned by his friends and disciples in the previous uh, section of this chapter, but, but check out what God had planned for him. This is one of my favorite passages to preach ever. And it's the conversion of Saul. And I already alluded to this with the whole Ananias story, but, but I'll, I'll go there again. When Paul is on the road to Damascus and he gets blinded, Jesus talks to him. He gets a vision right, of Ananias. And then God, who's awesome, gives Ananias a vision. And I want to read that to you guys because I, I want you to know that this suffering wasn't, wasn't outside of God's will, but again, it's all part of his plan for Paul. Acts chapter 9 verse 10 says, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, hey Ananias, and he said, here I am Lord. The Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul for behold he's praying. And he's seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. And Ananias goes, Lord, uh, I've heard from many about this man. How much evil he's done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. Ananias is like, yeah, no, 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 Lord. I'll do anything for you. I will do anything for love, but I won't do that, right? Like Saul's super sketchy. But listen to what God says to Ananias. But the Lord said to him, Go. For he's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Right? There's the first part of God's plan. He's a chosen instrument. He's going to carry my name to many, many places. And then listen to this next part. <sighs> Scary. Verse 16. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Guys, suffering is part God's plan for his people. If you're sitting in your house, you go, no, 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 suffering can't be part of God's plan, Mitch. That doesn't make sense. God's plan should all be about comfort, and God's plan should be about my mansion. I don't know if God could ever use suffering. Then I would stop you right there and say that's not true. We've already read the verses in Philippians and Romans that say that it's been granted to Christians to suffer, and if we suffer with Christ, we'll be glorified with Christ. But I would have you look no further than the cross of Christ himself. If you think about suffering and you go, oh no, 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 I don't want to suffer. That's not the will of God. Then you're wrong. Because 
as we go back to the other guy that heard the words away with him, Jesus, right? As I've already mentioned at the beginning of this, he's the one who was sitting on his throne in heaven and decided to take on flesh to become a human. That's a low place to be for the king of the universe, let me tell you. And then he walks his life out perfectly without sin, not deserving of any punishment or any suffering, but then by the will of God, Jesus goes to this instrument of torture and he gives himself up on a cross and he's bleeding and battered and his body's jacked up and he's wearing a crown of thorns and it's so brutal what went down and he suffered for the sake of mankind according to the will of God. This verse in Isaiah, it's for, it was the will of the Father to crush him. If you think suffering is not part of God's design or plan, then look no further to the cross. If you haven't yet put your faith and trust in this Jesus who took on flesh, went to the cross and gave himself up for you and for me, for the sins of the world, to pay the debt that we owe to God, so that we might be forgiven and saved and have eternal life, I would plead with you to give your life over to Jesus. Because God's plan of redemption was on display as the suffering servant, Jesus Christ, gave himself up for us so that we can be made right with God and be saved. I don't want to give it away, but Paul says ultimately that his imprisonment, which this is the beginning of, led to the furtherance of the gospel. It's like, man, this actually worked out for the... The gospel went further. And we're going to read story after story of Paul bearing witness to who Jesus is and what he'd done. And my hope and prayer is that we as a church can really dive into this and see the glory and worth of Jesus as Paul continues to suffer and suffer and suffer for the sake of Christ. And at the end of it all, I'll say, yeah, it was worth it. It's for my king. Jesus suffered for me. Glad to do anything to carry out his will for my life. Let me pray, guys. Lord God, it's hard to even imagine the people screaming out away with him to Paul, right? Like, this is Paul. He's a legend. He didn't even do anything. It wasn't that he was forsaking the law, but he was teaching the truth about the law, putting it in its rightful spot. It wasn't about the law for salvation. It's all about you, Jesus. And yet this was so offensive that they arrest him and they try to beat him and they scream out away with him. They just wanted him dead. But Lord, how much more ridiculous is it that they scream this out at your trial, Jesus? The perfect, spotless lamb. People were screaming for you to be crucified. God, I pray that the weight of what you did can lay heavy on our hearts that we might worship you and give you the honor and praises to your name for what you've accomplished in our behalf. 
Lord, thank you for the encouragement of these stories. So we watch this unfold, the furtherance of your gospel and your kingdom as Paul is going to carry your name before kings. We just pray that you'd empower us to be a light and a witness to those around us that you've put in our sphere of influence. That we would be obedient to your call no matter what the cost, because that's what you did. And God, I couldn't do that on my own. We have your spirit. Paul had your spirit, God. And, and we can look at his courage and his boldness, go, wow, Paul's so awesome, but Lord, I don't see that. I see you at work in his heart. And we want to glorify you for the work that you've done in Paul's life and the courage that he had. God, we give you all the praise. We give you all the glory. We pray that as we sing songs about you and to you, Lord, that you be blessed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's nothing worth more that will ever come close. Nothing can compare. You're our living hope. Your presence, Lord. And I've tasted and seen. Oh, the sweetest of loves Where my heart becomes free And my shame is undone Your presence Holy Spirit I will come here Come flood this place and fill the atmosphere Your glory, God, is what our hearts long for To be overcome by Your presence, Lord Nothing worth more that will ever come close. Nothing can compare. You're our living hope. Your presence. I've tasted and seen of the sweetest of loves Where my heart becomes free And my shame is undone Your presence, Lord Holy Spirit I will come here, come flood this place and fill the atmosphere. Your glory, God, is what our hearts long for, to be overcome by 
peace and fill the atmosphere Your glory, God, is what our hearts long for To be overcome by Your presence, Lord Your become more aware of your presence let us experience the glory of your goodness let us become more aware of your presence let us experience the glory of your goodness let us become more aware of your presence Let us experience the glory of your goodness Let us become more aware of your presence Let us experience the glory of your goodness And fill the atmosphere Your glory, God, is what our hearts long for To be overcome by your presence, Lord Holy Spirit, you are welcome here Come flood this place and fill the atmosphere your glory, God, is what our hearts long for To be overcome by your presence, Lord Passion, love that's never failing. Let mercy fall on me. Everyone needs forgiveness, the kindness of a savior, the hope of nations. Savior, He can move the mountains. My God is mighty to save. He is mighty to save forever. Author of salvation, 
He rose and conquered the grave. Jesus conquered the grave. for this time and we gotta just um, be in your presence and be in your midst lord i just thank you for the ability to um even live stream this uh during this time lord i just pray that as we go throughout our week lord that you'll just be with us lord you'll protect us from any sickness lord i just thank you that um really we have nothing to fear because our hope is in you lord and i just thank you uh for for sending your son to die on the cross for our sins lord and i just thank you for um, the truth and the fact that if we come to you and we accept you into our lives and as our Savior, Lord, that we have eternal life. I just thank you for that. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. All right, thanks guys for uh, tuning in. Hope you guys have a great week.